Well, good morning. I don't know about you guys, but um, I was, growing up, I've always been a big fan of, like, courtroom drama. Like, I mean, like, really. Um, I mean, I lo- like, I remember watching the movie A Few Good Men for the first time when I was, like, a teenager and, like, just loving it. Like, and not even just, like, the big scene with, like, Jack Nicholson at the end, Jack Nicholson at the end, but, like, just the, just the, uh, the back and forth between the two lawyers as they try to outsmart each other, as they try to outwit each other to try to win their case. And, and like, I remember watching that, and, like, there's other movies, of course, that have, like, different courtroom scenes. And I don't know why. I was always fascinated by that sort of thing. I, I, there was definitely a time in my life where I was planning on being a lawyer. Um, maybe that's just kind of part of how I'm wired. Like, I, 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 like my wife has said this before. Um, she'll be the first to tell you, like, you know, I'm naturally wired to reason and argue and debate and find a way to justify or make, uh, win my point when I'm talking to somebody. Uh, even when I, you know, went into ministry, like, early on, like, as I was, you know, in Bible college and, and beyond, like, even then, like, I would love to get into, like, theological debates and, like, you know, and, and have those discussions and try to win my points and, you know, like, for, I've just always been wired to, like, enjoy, like, debate. I don't know why. It's just one of my fascinating things. And I find it interesting, you know, that, that's kind of what we think about when we, see, when we think about courtrooms and then we think about, like, trials. You, you think about, like, the back and forth, the back and forth. Here we have um, perhaps one of the biggest trials ever in history. And as we're reading, as we're going to look at it today, there's really no real back and forth. There's no real kind of like element of that kind of human drama that, that like appeals, like that appeals to my flesh. But what we see is we see a clear picture of Christ and who he is and letting that speak for him in this setting. So if you have your Bibles, hopefully you've already opened them to Mark chapter 14, starting with verse 53. Um, we're going to go through this passage together. Um, and just kind of let it reveal to us about who Jesus is and how this trial, what this trial says about who he is and, and going forward and who he is. This is verse 53. It says, And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. Now remember, if, remember how chapter 14 has been unfolding, okay? They've arrested Jesus at night, Okay. We know because, you know, at the end of the story, you have the rooster crowing that obviously this is still sometime yet before dawn that this is happening. Now they've all assembled to kind of have this hearing um, at night in secret uh, that almost kind of like, you know, it's, it's this hidden thing. Um, and if you look all the way back at the beginning of 14, when they were first plotting his death, that was like kind of one of the things they wanted to do. They said, you know, they were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him in verse 1. In verse 2, where they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. In other words, not in a public setting, because we don't want people to get all crazy in this, in, in this and like, you know, start really like making this be something that divides us and causes a riot or anything like that. So they're trying to do this kind of in, in, in secret. Um, you know, and there's Jewish writings out there about like the traditions of how the like, the, like a Jewish trial would work. 
Um, we have something that was written around the second century AD or third century AD that talks about how like they were supposed to be like this two day or three day thing where you would have a couple days of accumulating witnesses and having witnesses testify. And then the elders would take like a third day to kind of weigh in and actually make their decision about whether someone stood guilty or not. And in this trial, and it was supposed, you know, it was supposed to be something during the day, like night trials were kind of forbidden. And in this trial, you don't have any of that. And it's not really clear whether or not this is like just uh, like an isolated instance of them basically doing something that's totally, you know, like an illegal trial, like totally like you, them using their power to um, kind of circumvent the system, like of how they normally would do it, or whether or not this particular regime of power always did this sort of thing because they were power hungry and they had like this way of going about it. But what we see is just like that they want, they want to keep it hidden. They want to keep it secret. They want to like, they don't, they, they have like, you know, that selfish intentions that like that men in power sometimes get that they want to keep their power and they're willing to abuse their power in order to get accomplished what they want accomplished. In verse 54, it says, And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. And this would kind of seem like a little bit of an out-of-place statement because the rest of what we're about to read in the next several verses is all about Jesus standing trial before the priest. But I believe Mark includes this because he really wants us, as we're reading these, this passage that we're going to talk about today, he really wants us to see these things as standing side by side. Here you have Jesus standing, with, standing trial with the priest, and then you have Peter in his own kind of trial happening out in the courtyard. And we're meant to compare the two. We're meant to look at the two and see the difference. And kind of see, you know, what's going on? What, 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 where is righteousness found? In verse 55, it says, Now the priest, now the chief priests of the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. Now, like I said, in normal trials, what you would need is you would need at least two or three witnesses to come together and agree about someone's wrongdoing. They would need to bear witness and bear testimony that this is what this man did. And by doing this, he deserves punishment. And they're, because this has been something that they've been doing in secret, and they, they, I mean, you can clearly see they haven't taken the time. This isn't like, you know, what trials look like today where you have months of gatherings of evidence and the police doing all their work and then you have the lawyers and the prosecutors preparing everything that they have step by step that literally takes months before you ever get to even a trial and then the trial gets brought out and you have all this long you know laid out of evidence and, and debate and back, defense back and forth before you get to the convict to the verdict part this isn't anything like that. This is something that they are just trying to rush and do and like, all right, let's bring some people in that say they have stuff to say about. And so people come in, they start testifying, and they start bearing these witnesses and they're not agreeing. And what, what it means is they're not able to really have anything to hold them guilty for. They don't have anything to say, yep, Jesus, you're wrong. You deserve punishment. You deserve death. They want to they they find something to give them a reason to have them killed but they don't have the agreement among any kind of witness because the witnesses are just bearing these different false testimonies that aren't lining up to really hold any weight and actually hold as evidence against him. 
And verse 57, and then some stood up and bore witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. Now, in the Gospel of John, Jesus makes a statement somewhat similar to this. He talks about the temple being, you know, destroyed and being raised up in three days. We know that from other prophecies, he talks about the temple being destroyed down, you know, in the end of days and stuff like that. We, we, in chapter 13 of Mark, he kind of made a similar, you know, um, prophecy. But when it actually comes to the, the, what he was actually saying in that prophecy, he was actually talking about himself being destroyed and brought down in three days, being raised up again. He was talking about his temple, him, the, the body of Christ being broken down. And because he had made that statement in that way, the people that even heard him didn't really understand what he was saying. And when they even try to bring that up as a charge against him, they clearly can't agree because they don't, their own interpretations of what he was saying, their own hearings of what he was saying just doesn't line up and doesn't match. And still to this, they're still at this point where they're, the, the high priest and the, and the people that are, they were so convinced that they need to find a way to condemn him to death They've heard all these witnesses come forward and they're kind of at an impasse because they don't have anything to hold against them yet. So verse 60, high priest um, in, in the book of Matthew, we know this is Caiaphas, stands up and he decides to just go directly to the source. All right, th- this witness thing isn't working. All right, let's just get Jesus to do something wrong, to say something wrong so that we can hold it, so that we can just, you know, so we can condemn him. And he starts by saying, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? And verse 61, but he remained silent and made no answer. See, so far, all all that's been done is a bunch of false witnesses have come up making these false accusations that don't even agree with one another. And to these sort of things, Jesus sees no reason to respond. There's no reason for him to be justified to try to justify himself to these false accusations, to try to justify himself to these men who would have him explain himself and try to have him defend himself about these things. And it says, again, the high priest asked him, since now Jesus hasn't answered that first question, let, let me, he tries again. He says, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed, the son of the blessed? So he goes right to the heart of the matter, all right? Like we've tried to find things that you've done wrong, try to find statements that you've made that comes wrong. But what it really comes down to is based on your teachings and what you're teaching, we know what you're getting at. Jesus has taught many things that has led to no other conclusion than him saying that he is basically saying, I am the son of God. I am the Messiah. I am the promised one sent to you. So now they're just going to like put it on that. Is that who you are? Is that who you're going to say you are? And finally, Jesus answers, and notice it's not, a def- it's not a statement of defense. It's a statement of fact. It's a statement of identity. He doesn't give any argument. He doesn't argue with what they're doing is wrong. He doesn't talk about how this trial is a sham, how this trial is just, you know, 
something done by a bunch of power-hungry people and people who are afraid that he's going to shake up their world. He doesn't do any of that. He just makes a simple statement of fact about who he is, his identity. Verse 62, and Jesus said, I am. That affirmative statement that's meant to tie directly back to God's own identifying of himself to Moses in, the, in, in Exodus. It says, I am. And then he says, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power. This is a statement. Now, at this point, like, there's no mistaking what, what Jesus is saying. He's saying that I'm the one, you know, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, the seat that was reserved only for the divine. Only the divinity would be able to sit in that seat. And Jesus is basically saying, I am divine. This is where I sit at the right hand of power. And I will be coming with the clouds of heaven. So in this moment, Jesus makes that affirmative statement about who he is, saying, yes, I am. I am the Christ. I am the Son of God. I am the Son of Man. You will see me sitting at the right hand of God, because that is where I belong. And one day I will be coming with the clouds of heaven back to this earth as God, as the King. And for the high priest... This statement that Jesus is making, a fact of who he is, of, of his identity statement, is obviously something he doesn't believe because his reaction is to tear his robe, which is the sign of ultimate, like, in those traditions, it's meant to be like, like what we heard is so awful that I don't even want to ever bear these robes again because they are now tainted by your words. They're tainted with what I've seen. They're tainted with this blasphemy. You have committed this sin. You committed this ultimate sin. And he says right away, he says, the high priest tore his garments and said, what further witnesses do we need? In other words, we don't need any witnesses. We've heard it right from his mouth. He says he's the Christ. He says he's the son of God. And in their minds, there's no way that can be true. Even though they can't find any other fault with him, there's no way that he can be the Christ. He can be the promised Messiah, that he can be God in the flesh. And it says, you have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And it says, they all condemned him to desert, as deserving death. So all the priests are with him. All the high, the council, the Sanhedrin that we know that sits in trial over Jesus. Basically, they all hear this and they all come to the same conclusion. Jesus you're a liar, you're a blasphemer, and you deserve death. And then you see the, just the, you know, the severity of how much they reject what he says. In verse 65, it says, And some began to spit on him, and then they start mocking him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy. And it says, And the guards received him, because now the trial's over, so now he's being put back to the guards under their watch. Because trial is over. He's been condemned to death. And the guards receive him with blows. The guards are going to start mistreating him now because now he's a condemned man. So we compare that trial of men trying to lay claim against Jesus 
Jesus being silent from his accusations and Jesus' only statement being a statement of fact about who he is, about his identity being the Christ. Compare that to now what we read, starting in verse 66, to Peter. Because as that's going on, you have Peter in the courtyard. And it says, And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene Jesus. Now, the fact that she's a servant girl of the high priest means she probably would have spent a lot of time in the temple areas and the courtyards where Jesus has just spent the past week preaching and his disciples have been with him. So she's pretty sure she knows who Peter is. And she says to him, you also were with the Nazarene Jesus. And so we have Peter now being accused in verse 68. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. I don't know what you're talking about. Remember, this is the same Peter that just earlier in the chapter, you look back to verses 26 to 31, Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. Because Jesus has told them, you guys are all going to, you are going to all fall away. I'm going to be arrested and you're going to all fall away from me. You're not going to, you know, you're not going to have anything to do with me. Peter's like, nah, uh I will not, Jesus. And Jesus told him exactly what's happening right now, which is that, truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And Peter's response is, he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. So you go back now to where we're at in verse 68. Peter's already denied him. First time he's had a chance to show, all right, Peter, here's your chance. Don't deny him. You said you were willing to die with this man. And he says, I don't know what you're talking about. And he says, and he went out to the gateway and, and the rooster crowed. So he's trying to like kind of leave that scene now because now he's, he's been spotted. All right. And he's trying to kind of like quietly slip away. Like, let me get away from these crowds that are now kind of looking at me. And, the, and it says, verse 69, and the servant girl saw him. So she's kind of almost like watching him now. And now she begins to see the bystanders, like, because now she's, like, following him out there, like, and he's right there with more, and she's like, she says, this man is one of them. He's one of the disciples. He's one of Jesus's people. It says, verse 70, but again, he denied it. So now, again, he's telling him again, no, I am not one of them. I don't know what you're talking about. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, now it's the bystanders that are putting this all together and being like, no, you know, the servant girl's right. And we look at you and you're clearly a Galilean. They said, certainly you're one of them for you are a Galilean. Okay. They would have been able to identify by the way he looked and and the way probably his, I don't know if there was an accent or whatever. There was identifying things that you could just tell that that's where he's from. And now the servant girl is saying, you're one of Jesus' followers. We know Jesus came from Galilee. So 
This is all making sense. Yeah, you're definitely one of them. And it's at this point that, like, Peter backed into a corner. You know, I, I talked about, like, you know, your courtroom drama, the back and forth. Like, this is where you get the human element of the courtroom drama because, like, now Peter, in order to make his case, in order to emphatically say, no, I'm innocent, says he, be, he says, but he began to invoke a curse on himself. In other words, he, began to, he was so adamant about trying to prove to these people that I'm not one of these disciples that you're looking for. Like, he's willing to basically saying, you know, let me be cursed if I'm lying to you. Or however he brought that curse upon him. He says he used a curse in order to convince him to say, I do not know this man of whom you speak. I don't know him. Meaning I haven't been with him. I haven't spent time with him. I haven't been one of his followers. I don't know him. In verse 72, it says, And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. When I look at this, when I've been studying this passage this week and praying and feeling the Holy Spirit talking about it, this has been a very, very like heart-wrenching, convicting passage. Um, it's very easy, like, like I said, like, you know, the human part of us kind of wants us to read this in terms of like, you know, like when you read a, when you read a story, you know, like we've, we've, we've entered the part of the, of the story where things are really building up, right, towards that climax. Like, things are getting really excited, like, things are getting, like, busy, action, things are happening. Like, Jesus has been arrested. Now Jesus has been put on trial. Now he's been condemned to death by, the, by, by his own people. You know, and then you have Peter falling away, like, after he said he wouldn't. And you almost kind of want to, like, vault right over the passage sometimes and go right to the next because you know what's coming next is going to be even bigger because it's the part where he's going to stand before Pilate and he's going to go be crucified, But when we let ourselves pause, and when I let myself pause and really study this passage as I was preparing to preach about it, there were some big things that I felt the Holy Spirit just really convicted me on. The first most important thing I want to draw from this passage that is something I think we, you know, we always say, if, you, if, you, if you've been in the church if you've grown up in the church or if you've just been attending the church for a while, you've undoubtedly heard this say, and that's that Jesus is faultless. Jesus is sinless. But, when I, but I, I don't want you to miss that fact coming out of this passage because what Mark is trying to show clearly is that there was nothing tangible that the priest as skewed as they were, as bent as they were to try to find a way to convict Jesus. Even despite all that, there was nothing that they could really hang on him as being a fault, as being a sin, as being something worthy of death. 
You know, we, we, we clearly see that they're partial judges. They arrested him for the whole purpose to try to condemn him to death, to do this in secret. Like, they want him gone. They want him eliminated. And yet, they do this trial that is, you know, kind of a sham to begin with. And yet, despite all of that, they still don't have anything that they can look at and say, see, this is what you're at fault for. You did this, or you said this, or you did this sort of thing wrong. They don't have anything. No matter what witnesses they bring forward, no matter how they try to connect something together, Jesus stands blameless and faultless. And the reason why this is so important to what Mark is writing, and the reason why this is so important for when we're talking about who is Jesus, is because this really is a crux of whether or not what the gospel is saying about Jesus Christ being our Savior, being the worthy lamb who is worthy to take on our sins, hangs on. Because if Jesus had fault, if Jesus had sin, if Jesus has something wrong with him, then he can't take your sins and die for it because he deserves death already. We can't ignore this fact And if you try to gloss over and be like, well, there had to be something wrong with him. He was human after all. Then what you're doing is you're contradicting the very essence of what salvation is all about. That an unblemished lamb, like from the beginning, when God sets up the whole system of sacrifice and paying for sins, it was the idea of an unblemished lamb coming in that sin, being cast on that unblemished lamb. If Jesus has fault, he is no longer an unblemished lamb. So do not miss that fact. It's Jesus in his perfect submission to the Father, coming to earth, God in the flesh, being willing to stick with the Father's plan, and while living as also fully man, here, his perfect submission to the Holy Spirit in leading everything that he did, that we see now Jesus having run his course, run his race, standing before these men with no fault being able to be found with him. Standing blameless, standing sinless. So what do they finally find fault for? What do they finally just try to say is a fault? It's not anything that he did. What they find fault for is about who he says he is. Jesus says, or when asked, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Jesus goes, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, coming with the clouds of heaven. He says, I am. I am the Christ. When you talk about the gospel, when we talk about the gospel, when we talk about the gospel of salvation, the doctrine of salvation, and whether or not we believe that, you know, whether or not you believe or not, this is really what, what it comes down to is, is, do you believe Jesus is who he said he is? 
Do you believe he is who he said he is in that he is the Christ who came from God? He is God in the flesh who came bearing the weight of sin on the cross so that you may be saved. And then it's now because he was raised from the dead, sitting at the right hand of God. Either you believe that is true and you recognize that Jesus is righteous and that God proved his righteousness by raising him from the dead. Or that statement should offend you just as much as it offended the priest if you choose not to believe it. And in many ways, like when I look at this and I talk about like, you know, how Jesus is the Christ and is righteous and his identity then becomes the source of all righteousness. You know, there's, Paul talks about in Romans about how there, there is no one righteous, not even one except for Jesus Christ, except for the one who God sent. And only through him can we be found to be justified and be righteous. It's only through Christ that that's possible. Meaning, you have to come back to this statement of what Jesus said about who he is and say, if you're going to say that you believe that statement, understand what that means. It means you are, just as Jesus was committed to death, you are committing your life, your old life, the, your old identity, your old identity of being, you know, this person who in God's eyes is considered unrighteous, you are committing that person to death. You are basically saying, I choose Jesus' path. I see Jesus saying who I am, and because these people don't believe it, they believe Jesus deserves death. And for us, when we're given that question, who do you believe Jesus to be? And even more directly, do you believe Jesus and who he says he is? If you say yes, and you truly believe that with all your heart, you are saying, I am putting my old life, my old way of thinking to death. Because my righteousness no longer can be found in anything that I can think of or that my friends can think of, or that my parents or my teachers or my employers or my coworkers can think of. My righteousness isn't found in any of those things. My righteousness is in Christ alone because of who he, he, because of who he is. And in making that statement, that's where we get to the third point, which is that Jesus makes us righteous. When we put our belief and faith in Christ, that becomes what makes us righteous in God's eyes. Not because of us, not because we did well, good job, way to finally open your eyes, way to finally see who I am. 
But because of what Jesus has done and who he is and what he's done for us, now we are declared to be righteous. His actions, not ours. When we look at Peter, it was very easy for Peter, standing there next to Jesus, to be able to say, Jesus, I'm going to go with you. Jesus, I will not fall away. I will not leave you. You are my friend, Jesus. You are, like, I'm with you. And then the moment he's not right next to Jesus, the moment he's standing on his own personal trial, away from Jesus, we see where Peter still is identifying his righteousness with, who Peter is still identifying what's, you know, what's going to validate and make him justified. It's not an identifying with Jesus because he knew where that was leading. That was leading to death. In that moment, he wants to be justified with those people, by those people. He wants those people to look at him as righteous. Their, righteousness, their view of righteousness becomes more important in that moment to Peter than God's, which is why he denies knowing Jesus. And it's very easy for us, you know, to look at Peter. Um, and, you know, because this is such a well-known story, Peter's denial of Jesus, and, like, it's, you know, you, you look at Peter kind of with that view of, like, Man, he blew it. Like he, 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 you know, he blew it big time, and it's recorded in you know the gospels. And you just look at him and be like, "Dang, Peter! Like, you you lived with Jesus for three years, yet you you couldn't see it." You know what the the real unique thing is is when it's because we hear that we've we've you know you've heard that story so many times probably. Um, you sometimes, it's sometimes so easy to lose the context of when this was originally being written and read. Like, when Mark first wrote this gospel, it's probably like at least 20 years later after this has all happened. And in that 20 years, and the audience that, Peter, that uh, Mark is writing this to, it's probably like a very Roman audience. You, do you realize who Peter is at this point in time when they're reading this for the very first time? Man, Peter's the man. Peter's this awesome saint who has been running this race, been leading the church, been preaching the name of Jesus, been doing these miracles. Can you imagine, like, as a church, like, you, you, you know, you, you probably had heard the story through, through passing down, but you're finally getting to read it or have it read to you because, you know, it's not like it, there was mass production in that case in those days. But you have it being read to you and you're hearing that this man that you look up to right here, even him, even, even this guy could lose sight of where righteousness comes from, can lose sight in those moments and, and let ourselves, you know, be so worried about what other people think. It's very easy for us to see such a vocal you know, denial of Jesus and think to ourselves, you know, I would never, like, you know, vocally deny Jesus. Like, if someone, you know, like, had a gun to my head and said, you know, do you believe in Jesus Christ? I'd say yes. 
And I'm not here to challenge you whether or not you would say yes or not. Because I don't think that's honestly even the heart of the matter. And I don't even think that's how we even see it as far as like where our, where our uh, lack of testimony really even happens. Because you got to understand, when I read this passage and I see Peter denying him, I don't just look in terms of like, yeah, his words and this, this is an outright denial. This is very clear, black and white. You know, Peter wasn't letting Christ define his righteousness. He was letting the people. Problem is, I think there's many ways that we, every day, allow our righteousness or our justification to come from other people other than God and other than our identity in Christ. And I think in doing so, you know, as much as we want to say we're so different from Peter because we wouldn't have that outright denial, in doing so, that's really where we need to let ourselves identify ourselves and our sin and our falling away from Christ in that we let ourselves just be convinced, like we let our lives demonstrate that we care more about man's approval other than God's approval. Jesus gives this perfect example. When you know who he is, when you know that in his identity and who he is comes all righteousness, that suddenly takes away a lot of need to want to have to defend ourselves, to have to justify everything we're doing, to want to have to, um, you know, make sure that everybody's happy with us and happy with the things that we're doing, happy with the choices we're making, you know, trying to make sure everyone, like, you know, sees us in this kind of perfect light that we want everybody to see us in. Because what becomes important, the only thing that becomes important is us knowing what our status is in God's eyes because of his son, Jesus Christ. Not because of us, because of who we are, because we are surrendering our lives to Jesus and letting his righteousness become our identity. And don't get me wrong, it's easy for, me to, for us to talk about that, and, and sometimes you get to the conclusion of being like, well then, you know, there's, there's no reason to, to hear anything that anybody says about you and, and corrects you, but it's actually like, it's kind of weird. I mean, when I was thinking about it, as I was really praying about this, you know, before we let Christ become our identity, you know, before we surrender to that, then yeah, man's opinion of us, man's like, you know, you know, weighing in on us can really detract because it really makes us focused on how do I, you know, do better for us. And it's so wired in our culture, like from the, from the get-go, like, you know, like we're wired to like, you know, win your parents' approval, and then you're wired to win your teacher's approval, and then you're wired to win, you know, your, your friend's approval. And then we're so easily in a culture that's driving us and pushing us to achieve all these things. We're, we're so, it's so easy to just have this fleshly desire to want to, obtain a status in everybody's eyes. 
Yet I believe once you surrender to Christ's status and you no longer worry about what your status says to other people, but you're now worried just solely on what Christ says about you and trying to live your life surrendering to that every day, then it almost comes full circle where now you can look to your brothers and sisters in Christ as being ones who kind of hold you accountable. And you don't do it in a way when you're, when you're finding your identity in Christ. It's no longer a threat to your identity to hear somebody point out something that you can still be working on. If you're secure in who, where your value comes from and being the son of God and being surrendered to him, now we can walk alongside one another, pushing one another, helping another, picking one another up when we fall and not feeling like we're doing so with attitudes or hearts of like judgment or um, condemnation because there is no condemnation that any person can hold against us because of who Christ has made us to be. Because we are in him. Our identity is in him. And if you believe that, and you truly let that take over your life, and you truly let that be something that you own, and if our church, as one, we come together and we say, this is where our identity is, in Christ alone, his righteousness, not ours. And we submit to that and we look to surrender our lives to that. Then together, as we walk that path, we can become something, you know, we, we truly become the body of Christ that he intended us to be. As he leads us forward, us helping one another out, different parts of the body, encouraging, pushing, leading, Spurring on. And we leave a lot, we leave behind any desire to be justified by men, but justified by Christ alone. You have to come back always for me. It was just this like simple reminder this week. So powerful and it's just been tearing me up every time is like daily my need because the moment I stop doing it, the, the easy, so easy it is to get off track. Daily coming back to what Jesus said and who he said he is. Do I believe that? And if I believe it, am I willing to surrender my life to it? Do I believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the son of God, that he is sitting at the right hand of power. If I believe that, then every day I need to be seeking ways to surrender my life to that, to that truth. Every day I need to be seeking ways in which I can let his identity be all that matters to me, not mine. And, and it's, it's, it's convicting for me because even as I've, you know, want to like point out to myself the ways that I've followed Christ all these years, and you know, have done all these different things, whether it be working at a church or you know, talking to friends or whatever it might be, 
God is constantly convicting me of ways I let my identity like stray towards what others see me as or the things that I like to pride myself in. Breaking me down of pride, breaking me down of like how wise I might think I am. And And I really have, like, I don't know, I just read this, I just, like, I keep going back, reading this passage over and over again, and I just really feel, sent, like, overwhelmed with this sense of desire of wanting to say, like, to myself every day, like, how are you surrendering to him? How are you really letting yourself just every day saying, Jesus, this is who I believe you are, and that's all that matters, that's all that I need. don't need any other justification, any other approval other than yours and my desire to try to follow you and let you take over my life. As we, as, as we, as we come to communion today, as we, as we come together as a church, um, I really encourage you to spend some time before you come up and partake in the bread and blood of Christ, which represents that his salvation of us, his adoption of us into his family is part of that, you know, our new status, our new identity in him, our new righteousness that allows us to, um, allows us to share this meal through him. I, I encourage you to, to spend some time asking the Holy Spirit to be speaking to you about the ways that you need to surrender to him more, the ways that you need to surrender your identity to him more, the ways in which you're still holding on tight in others' approval or in your own approval, whatever that might be, giving that up, letting it go, letting Christ's approval be all that matters. Let's pray.